Hey everyone, welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast. I'm your host Richard Gaffin, now with the brand spanking fancy new title of Director of Digital Product Strategy here at Common Thread Collective. Yeah, I know. Exciting fancy. stuff. Congrats. Yeah, that's man. right. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. So uh essentially that means I'm the guy behind the scaling guide and D2C index and a couple of our other products that we're trying to get out there. But I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Taylor Holiday, the CEO of Common Thread Collective. Taylor, how are you doing? Doing well, except I am now like batting a thousand on spilling coffee on the shirt that I am wearing every day of my entire life. And I just, if I could make any <laughs> self-improvement this year, it's it's got to be around that that action. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I remember those commercials for those pants where like that are hydrophobic. So like the liquid just rolls off them. I just yep. feel like I yep. need a whole track suit made of that stuff. You know, I mean, it's, it's the only way I, to do sometimes it. I like, I don't even know how it happened. It's just like, mm-hmm. I didn't feel it. I didn't notice it. <laughs> But it's there, yeah. and it doesn't come out that well. It's annoying. Too. Yeah, I know. It really bugs it's me. like I'm an adult. How did how did I miss my mouth? Like I don't, <laughs> I don't understand it exactly. That. Terrible. Yeah. Anyway, so we have a we have an exciting episode in front of us. We're going to cover a couple of different topics. So first, we're going to speak a little bit to a blog that we're recording it this the week before it comes out. But so it'll be last week we released the blog about merchandising the ad account, which I think is a really fascinating concept. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. And then we're also going to dig into something else I'm very excited about, which is the podcast mailbag, an interesting question from a listener that we want to address. And I'll just remind you up top that the email address is podcast at commonthreadco.com. If you want to write in, if you have thoughtful feedback or question, we will probably read it on air give your business a shout out, speak about your situation a little bit. So if you want some sort of live advice, that's a great place to get it. So we'll get to that at the end of the episode. But at the top here, let's go ahead and dig into this idea of merchandising the ad account. So just to give this a little bit of setup, the concept here, or or I guess to make sure we're all on the same page. So merchandising in in the world of brick and mortar retail is essentially deciding A, which products you want to show on the floor, and then B, how you present those products. So, you know, a great example would be like the storefront window of anthropology or something like that, where everything is just sort of flawlessly executed. So you get a certain feeling about the products when you see them in that context. And our concept here is that your Facebook ad account is sort of like your store window, right? It's people are sort of, you can imagine your Facebook feed or Instagram feed being the street and they're strolling past a bunch of storefronts, maybe it's, you know, their friends' stories or whatever, and then they come across your product, right? And so the way that you present it and what you present becomes absolutely critical. So this is there's sort of four parts to how you think about merchandising the ad account, but we'll sort of start with step one here, which is thinking about budget. So Taylor, I'll kick it over to you to kind of maybe add some more context around this concept and then get into that idea of how you use budget to merchandise your ad account. Yeah, I've, I've started thinking about this after experiencing a lot of brands that felt like they had to show sort of everything everywhere all the time to borrow one of my favorite movies <laughs> of go. the year. Have you seen it, by the way? It's great. I um, have. It's great. Yeah. So for me, I think that the opportunity is to be much more intentional about what we sell and why. And so I love the idea of a store window and thinking about your Instagram or a user's Instagram feed or Facebook news feed as the modern mall where they're walking around, hanging out. And your job is to capture their attention. And a retail store window is fascinating, right? Because there's a constraint. There's a limited amount of space. Mm-hmm. You can only show a certain number of things. And you got to get people to come into the store and then buy. And you also want to influence what they buy, right? And then there's a whole set of merchandising decisions once they get into the store. Think of that as CRO or your website or whatever. But mm-hmm. you want to be really intentional about thinking about what you display in that window. And so I started to build or ideate around this process of, okay, what would be the way to merchandise your ad account to decide specifically and intentionally what you're displaying and why 
So we'll go through those four steps today. And the first one that you mentioned is really important. It's the budget because the budget defines the container. It's the limitation on how many things you get to show. Think of it as the size of the store window, right? You can't show everything here. You don't have budget to run every imaginable offer to promote every SKU. So the budget's going to define some sort of container for how many ideas you need to come up with, how many different campaigns you're allowed to run. And so having a method for determining that is really important. And so a simple way to begin to think about this process is you have a budget. Let's just use simple numbers to make on-air math less challenging. <laughs> right. You're spending $100,000, right? And you have $100 AOV product and you desire a two-to-one return on your advertising spend. So that would be a $50 CAC. So every purchase costs you $50. You have to spend $50 to get $100, right? Well, Facebook would tell us that in order to get out of the learning phase or to get to a definitive result that I can trust, I need to get through 50 purchases a week, right? So 50 purchases at $50 is $2,500 that I have to spend at minimum on every idea that I'm running. Well, if I have $100,000 that I can spend in total, right, for the entire month, right, that would be a max of 40 ideas that would run for a week. But in reality, you're probably going to run some of them longer. So you can whittle it down to an idea that say, well, how many ads do I have already running? What's the gap in my performance? And you're going to get somewhere to 20 to 30 ideas maybe that you need. Okay. Now, because we run everything on cost caps, we know that not every idea is actually going to spend. So we've developed this idea at CTC. We call $2 of ideas for every dollar of spend. So if I have to get through $100,000 of spend, I need 200,000 ideas. So maybe those 20 ideas turn into 40. You get the idea. You can begin to build a framework. We like to look at revenue per ad spent. So there's all these other indications you can use. And we're going to talk more about that in a future episode about thinking about forecasting production on the creative side. But the idea here is you're going to get to some number of ideas that is the container that you now have to begin to fill. How many ideas do I need? And now that's the constraint on the creative exercise. And this idea of like creative constraint, Richard, this is something you would help me think a lot about in other mm -hmm. ways, which is that the constraint actually now builds a trellis, if you will, to begin to ideate around. So share a little bit about the sort of creative constraint you think about as a writer sometimes that helps you sure. get to ideas quicker. Yeah. So the, the idea that, or actually this first came up when Taylor and I did sort of an ad philosophy course together and as the head of digital product, it would be fun to package that up and sort of distribute it to Coming you. Coming soon. Coming soon. Uh, yeah, exactly. But one thing that we talked about in terms of ad creative ideation is that the restraint is actually a creative benefit. It's not a drawback. And right. the example I use is in one of my, it probably won't surprise anybody given my backdrop here that I was an English major. And in one of my writing courses, we were asked to produce a piece of writing every week, but we had to create an artificial restraint around that writing. And I remember one girl in my class wrote a series of short stories based around this idea of a girl who was in an MRI machine. And she was sort of daydreaming when she was in the MRI machine. And so every story had to be set in something shaped like that. Either she was in a submarine or she was buried underground or she was in a rocket ship that was like really small and she was like flying through space or whatever, right? And she came up, like all of those concepts were fascinating and we all loved them and she would have never come up with those unless she had actually generated that restraint. And so I think like in the case of advertising, there's a lot of restraint that exists already in terms of like, you only have a square, you know, 1080 by 1080 square to like create your Facebook ad or whatever. But even beyond that, right, it's your budget limits the amount of ads you can create, which forces you to be more creative because you That's have right. fewer swings, right? That's so right. if you can only make 30 to 40 ads or whatever 
which is maybe covers, I don't know how many ad concepts that would be like five total messaging yeah. concepts, maybe yeah. better make them five good ones rather than just sort of like, you know, crapping out a bunch of different ideas and expecting that you can actually run them all. So, yeah, no, that's exactly right. So in CTC world, we've sort of tried to define specific parameters. So if we say 40 ads, what we actually mean is 10 concepts or campaigns. So every concept has two variations and two corresponding ads, a nine by 16 and one by one. So for every concept, another word you might hear used is campaign or angle. Every concept has four ads. And so you start to begin to structure of like, okay, what is the actual problem to be solved here? The problem to be solved here is 40 ads, 10 concepts. Okay, here we go. We now have a beginning output that we're trying to generate. Let's go begin to think about where we go. And that takes us into steps two and three. So that's the container. So the budget is step one in merchandising your ad account. Right. Okay. So then let's move on to another, essentially another restriction. Maybe all these, all four of these things that we're going to talk about are that, but step two is this idea of thinking about the calendar and essentially thinking about the expectations of your consumer, right? It becomes easy as marketers to get into a bubble and sort of ignore the world around you, honestly, which is ironic, I suppose, but it's easy to just sort of, let's say, produce evergreen to say like, Hey, these are the four concepts we think are going to work. Let's just throw them out there. When in reality, when you're picking what you're going to display in your ad account, you have to think about timing. So yeah, let's, let's dig into that a little bit, Taylor. So I would say rather than a constraint, this is a prioritization. So you could maybe, maybe mm -hmm. a similar thing, but now we're beginning to answer the question. Okay. We need a certain number of ads. Which one should we start with? And if you go back and listen to whether it was, I think it was two weeks ago, we talked about Four Peaks Theory and the value of the marketing yep. calendar. My argument is, is that the, at the top of the priority list should be the things that create the greatest imperative for purchase. And in my belief, that tends to be promotions, product releases, and cultural events. Okay, And we sort of give examples of those in a previous episode. So if I'm going to build a certain number of ideas, I'm going to start with looking at my marketing calendar and saying, I will prioritize the things that fit in this world. So do I have any product releases coming up? That has to be one of my ideas, right? Like that's gotta be a thing that I'm doing in my conversation. Number two, is there a promotion? Do I have a sale or an initiative that I'm running that's going to be distributed broadly as a business, right? And then three, when I say cultural moments, I mean, it's January and I'm a health brand. We're gonna talk about getting into new year, new you language. If I'm selling coolers and it's Memorial Day weekend, I'm gonna talk about going to the beach and using my, like you can begin to tie the imperative for purchase right now, right now mm -hmm. to the product. And I would say those ideas, those concepts need to make their way into merchandising first. And if you, again, walk through the mall in winter, you're gonna see some snowy themed gift looking Christmas stuff because that's the imperative for purchase in that moment. And so I think that concept has to apply here is that what has to rise to the top before we get to evergreen is the calendar. And we begin there in our ideation. Right. I think a lot of, especially a lot of creative ideation starts with reasons to buy. And those tend to, I think, I feel like in, in many creative meetings that I've had, we tend to knee jerk or revert rather back to why would people buy evergreen, right? People need right. shorts because they're comfortable, whatever. Really reason one people would buy is because it's summer. What is the time of the year? Like That's they right. need it now. They've made a new year's resolution. They're trying to follow through on, you know what I mean? Right. So it was interesting is, is these first two, these first two points touch on two things at the same time. So one is creative, like actually what do you make? And mm -hmm. then 
product, right? So the, yep. going back to that idea of merchandising retail, it's both what you display and how you display it. And we've been kind of that's talking right. mostly about how you display it. And we'll get maybe a little bit more into creative at the end, because that's our fourth point. But let's get into the idea of choosing what you display. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Obviously, calendar and budget both play a role in that. But one thing I wanted to talk about maybe before we get into product, or rather another point around product, is, is there a relationship between budget constraint and the product you choose, right? Because my expectation is like certain products have better CAC, a yeah, higher right. AOV perhaps. And so yep. sometimes your choices about what products you're going to show are directly tied to your budget constraints. Yeah, that's it's a great question. And in, in a lot of ways, it could actually be one of the circles that we're going to mention here in a second yeah. for thinking about this. Yes, if I, so we have a brand right now, I was just talking to one of our strategists that is a home goods and they sell everything from napkins to expensive sofas, right? And they sell sofas that go up as high as $10,000, okay? If you're going to run the campaign on the basis of the $10,000 sofa, you get way less ideas for your budget than you if you're going to sell linens, right? Like they're just wildly different costs, which again, we've got to think about Facebook as an input machine that I have to leverage its machine learning capabilities, which means I have to expect that there needs to be a number of purchases, a number of conversion events that inform my optimization. So yeah, absolutely the price, and really it's, it comes down to the target CAC that you have for yeah. the product is going to inform for sure a data point around the number of ideas that we have. Okay, so, well, I mean, and then that, that kind of leads into the, the sort of four subcategories here of product around like where you yep. should focus. And I remember we, we talked about this a while ago when we, we were... I was sort of preparing an article about creative generally and, and sort of my five-step process on creative ideation. And step one was choose what product to talk about. That's and right. so there's that graph, that Venn diagram, we can maybe have someone throw up here, which yep. is basically what we had in that article was 60-day LTV contribution margin overlapped sort of in the Venn diagram with volume and demand. And then the kind of crossover point being the gross profit per SKU. And that's essentially what you're trying to find. Like what is the highest gross profit per SKU product and then how do you build creative around that? But there's other considerations as well. So let's get into some of those. Yeah. So high volume, one, high margin, lifetime value, creative assets. So yeah, go for yeah, it. Yeah. So let's, so Corey, let's link that article because Richard wrote a great article on creative strategy that outlines all of this in a step, in, in an additional steps. And he and I used to brainstorm on this of like, okay, when you first start with a brand, there's a process you have to go through of going, okay, what am I going to sell? What, what am I going to merchandise? And so one of the things that we'd always look at is you want to understand a classic thing that everybody starts with is like, okay, well, what are the best sellers? So you're going to go in and look at volume. So that's like sort of one of these, what are going to be concentric circles that we're trying to find the overlap of, right? So I guess not concentric, Venn diagram. I always mix those up. Concentric is like they're within <laughs> yeah, each yeah, right. It's a Venn diagram of circles here it's that we're trying to get to the center point. So one is volume. I, I need to know where the demand for the product is because I don't just get to pick a product that nobody wants and say, just because it's high margin, we're going to sell that one. There actually has to be a sense of the demand external to us, right? So we're going to look at the top selling SKUs. That's going to be an important data point. But what I actually want to look at is the gross margin volume, right? So I want to look at the relationship between your top selling SKUs and the gross margin that that product is. Because the reality is that in a landscape of paid advertising, we have to insert CAC into the contribution margin calculation to really make sure that this works. And a product that has low gross margin, even if it's high volume, is likely a bad skew to use on an advertising basis. Now, 
it gets in less, which is our next circle we have to look at, and you just mentioned, it has a really high LTV. And so in the article that you would read, we would talk about the 60-day LTV of the first product purchased. Now, 60 days in that sense is arbitrary. You get to define the window that you want to look at the value of the customers in, depending on your capitalization, et cetera. But if we're speaking to people that have a consideration for short-term cash flow, 60 days is a really good number. And you'll see wild distinctions in those variations. So in looking at volume of gross margin, 60-day LTV, we can see big differences. And I think, Richard, you're going to point out an example of one of those big differences that Steve from our data team has been looking at. Yeah. So Steve, our data analyst, just tweeted this. What was this? Yesterday. So on the 24th. And we'll, we'll put a link to Steve's Twitter in there because it's worth a follow. And, and essentially what he's breaking down is the relationship between first product purchased and customer repeat rate. So the example that I think he's using in here is Bamboo Worth, I would expect, right? And yep. the idea here is that for two specific products, the sample kits, or, or rather, sorry, there's a sample kit and a full size kit. But anyway, these are sample samplers in a sense. You're getting a bunch of different products, right? When people purchase that first, their repeat rate within the first 30 days of ordering is, let's say for the sample kit, it's 18.66%. For the full size kit, 14.23%. For every other product, it's 11.38%, right? So that's a meaningful difference. When people are, their entry point into the brand is those sample kits, they come back. When it's something else, they're much less likely to. So, and Steve's going to kind of continue to map the relationship between this across a few different brands. But yeah, let's speak to that, your thought on sort of this well, correlation, so Taylor. The data is really interesting. So he looked at three specific products, okay? He looked at the sample kit, the full price purchase, and then what we grouped as any other purchase. And mm. what he found that's super interesting, and this is why this is so, so important to think strategically about what is the thing you're trying to accomplish, is that one, in a 30-day window, the repeat rate was highest on the sample kit. That's what it's designed mm. to do. This is why offer design is so powerful. But if you looked at a much larger window, I think a year is what he's looking at, the repeat rate yep. was highest on the full price product, on the full size product. The question is one of cash flow and consideration of value capture for time. And so this is why understanding the window that you need to realize profit is going to inform the product or offer that you're running in your ad account. And knowing this data is critical. And so before you can decide which product you want to merchandise your ad account with, you have to understand what is the problem we're trying to solve. Is it short-term cash flow? Is it a quick right. ROIC, quick return on invested capital? Or is it a long-term view of it? And every business gets to decide this for themselves. But as a, as a media buyer, as a merchandiser of an ad account, it is your obligation to understand and connect the actions you're taking to the overall business objective. Yeah. Steve phrases it this way. The first product purchased impacts both the likelihood to repeat and when that repeat is likely to happen. And so if there's a positive correlation between what they purchase and when you can expect them to come back, then that's a A1 consideration, I think, when you're thinking about what you advertise. That's exactly um, right. So that's yeah. that's our third circle. So our second circle, right, is so we have volume of gross margin. We have 60-day LTV. The third consideration that I would add in, too, is that we have to actually acknowledge what assets we have available to us, right? Because... The problem often for media buyers, and now if you're a creative production team and you can make something, and this is a decision about what you're going to produce content around, then okay, we don't have to worry about that. You get to choose anything. But oftentimes that's not the case. For us as an agency, we're dealing with like, here's our asset library, here's what we have to work with, and we have to make a decision that corresponds to it. So even if I have the best skew, 
again, let's use the bamboo earth example. If they're like, it's the mini kit. And they're like, oh, we don't act. We've actually never photographed the mini kit. We have no UGC. We have no video. We have nothing. Well, then that's going to limit your ability to advertise with it. So you have to have a consideration for what assets you have available to tell the story in the most compelling fashion for the business objective that you want. So that has to be a consideration for it as well. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. If, if you're running after a goal this month, you're not going to be able to make anything in time. That's, that's just the way it works. That's right. That's um, just the reality. But yep. Yeah. So just to, to summarize that real quick, because I think it's important. Focus on your products with A, highest volume, B, highest margin, three, longest lifetime value, which I guess would be combined with second into gross profit per SKU, uh, yep. or rather, sorry, 60-day LTV per SKU. And then four, the most readily available creative assets. And once you have a sense right. of like what lives in the confluence of those four things, you're going to have a pretty good answer, pretty clear answer to the question of what you should be advertising and how you should be building your ad account. That's right. So speaking of building the ad account, we just talked about creative, the assets that you have most available to you. But our step four in this, which you went over in this video, is the idea of creative. Your ad account will only perform as well as the offer and audience tied to your product. So speak to that a little bit. Like, how do you think about we talk about creative a lot, but how are you thinking about it in terms of this specific issue? Yeah. And in this issue, what I'm trying to do is connect, you know, a lot of people want to sort of put at odds with each other, the idea of account structure or creative, like which one's mm. better. And I'm in this yeah. case, trying to tie together two ideas, which is that your campaign structure, literally the, the build of your campaign should reflect the concept that you're running and what you're trying to answer. So a great campaign structure should have a consideration for three things. It should have a consideration for the offer, what I'm selling for all the reasons we just discussed and really technically so that I can inform a cost cap, a specific order value with this or a specific offer value that translates to a specific order value that I can design a specific CAC against to be able to leverage cost caps, which is something that's going to protect your downside, right? It should have the angle, which is, the concept or the way in which I'm selling this offer. And that should relate specifically to an audience. One of the things I see us fall into a trap on as advertisers is because we've moved to broad audiences as the Facebook technical distribution mechanism, we've removed for ourselves the idea that I'm actually speaking to a person still. I still have an audience in mind who are going to respond really well to that value proposition. And this level of specificity is something that I think is really powerful. The, this example that I give is there's this meme on TikTok that I fall for every time, every time, okay? Which is, it's like this low voice, it's this man's voice. And it's like, if your wife's name ends in A, watch out, she's a crazy one. <laughs> and okay, so my wife's name is Amanda. And so it speaks very personally to me. And I'm like, at first I like almost sent it to her. I was like, oh my gosh. But then I realized like, wait, there's like a thousand names that end in A, right? <laughs> exactly. And so it's this yeah. way of like, it catches people very personally and specifically, but it's also still a pretty big audience. It's a very impactful form of copywriting, you know, in this way that like has an audience in mind with the angle that's going to create that value proposition. So what I should be able to do is go into your ad account and see in the syntax of the campaign, what the angle offer an audience is so that then I can report on the validity or impact of that hypothesis. And again, so, so that's connecting this idea of every creative should be this sort of triangle of three things, angle offer an audience. And then that should show up in the way that we structure and think about the budget, the cost cap and the design of the campaign and tying all that together leads to a beautifully merchandised ad account. <laughs> okay. Here's, here's a question. So what, this is maybe a chicken or the egg thing. So like what comes first, 
I suppose, mm-hmm. angle off our audience like that thought work or the constraints yeah. Yeah. of the building of the campaign. Every brand decides this for themselves at a very personal level. I know founders that are running a business that say like, it actually matters to me who uses the product. Like it doesn't matter to me if the offer is better than for a specific, I don't care. This is who we are. We have a point of view on selling to this customer set. And so we start with audience. There are brands that start with who they do. And then there are brands that say, no, I don't actually care who buys my meal delivery product. Give me the best Mm -hmm. results. And we're sort of in the exploratory phase of who, and we'll let the results dictate who, right? They're two different strategies. And so I think it's really important to, to understand who you are and what you want. And I'll inform your partner in that way. Like I remember when we worked with Theragun early on, Richard, and I think you did, Mm -hmm. you did some work there, right? Like they actually would think very specifically about going from segment to segment to segment. And part of what they did is they used the creative production process and the partnerships and the influencer relationships to say like CrossFit's going to be a segment we care about. And so we're not just going to like remove the who we're going to start with building and embedding ourselves into this community. And so we need ads that do that job in support of the broader marketing efforts. And so in that case, we're not looking for you to just run to anyone. We're looking for you to help us accomplish this specific objective with this specific audience. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Like that. I often think that's the best way because now you're bringing in a more holistic approach to engaging and impacting that audience with more marketing beyond just the ad account. But I think a lot of people sort of go the other direction. They just start with offer and they go, well, I don't care who buys the offer, run it. Right. And either one has the potential to be impactful, but I think it's a question of like, as a brand, what are you trying to accomplish and how much does it matter to you who buys the product? Yeah. Right. There's, it's a deep personal question in a sense of like, yeah. who do we want to be? I think another good example of that is we had a, a knee brace, knee sleeve brand for a while and uh, the branding and yeah, like a, this is a great sort example. of ideal yeah. audience was all around athletes essentially. And a yeah. lot of athletes do wear it, but what they discovered is that people who had arthritis essentially, or had joint problems, people who were over the age of 60, let's say, and were just having trouble sleeping through the night because they had joint pain, loved the knee sleeves. And in fact, because there's an element of these knee sleeves, I mean, it's, it's incredible, I think we can say that, where they, yeah. they're, they're comfortable because there's no bracing in it. Like the thing that actually like causes the, the healing, essentially, or the pain relief, is it sort of increases circulation via copper fabric or something like that. And it really works. Right. My wife just used it and it worked like a charm. And the reason yep. that it was so easy to do is because it's comfortable. And so yep. through this sort of organic process, they discovered that there was this massive untapped market of people who are specifically helped by their product. And so we started leaning into that and that becomes, there is like a question of like, okay, do we start to show a lot of senior citizens in our ads and branding? And the answer ended up kind of being no, because there's a way that you can sort of validate the product with the athlete and then have the actual core audience still be a completely different demographic altogether. So it's not necessarily that those things have to work against each other per se, but it is like, I think there's value to being open to the fact that your product may be for somebody you didn't expect it to be. Yeah, totally. And and again, there are products like I think about boom by Cindy Joseph, right? Ezra's brand. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they went from the start very intentionally to say, we're actually going to build products for an older demographic. And that's going to be part of our UVP is that we actually know you specific user and we're building things for you. And all of their advertising reflects that. Whereas for bamboo earth, we actually got to a similar place where actually most of our core demographic now is like, I would say, you know, like, mid thirties to late forties. 
but we didn't start there. We actually started on a yeah. younger demographic and most of the visuals were there. And we let the sort of response to the product and advertising drive us there. Same sort of end result, but different modality for getting there. I think brands sometimes have a very clear point of view for a unique value proposition to a specific group of people. And then some people it's more exploratory. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you have to just sort of, I don't know, you have to kind of play it by ear, whether or not like, hey, if everybody sort of knows that this brand is for old people, is it going to be a problem for us? Like, maybe that's the case if you're like right. uh, trying to be like a fashion or apparel brand or something. But yep. it's just like every every case is different. But cool. Okay. So is there anything else you want to hit on the merchandising piece, specifically on the creative piece? I would just, I think one of the things to really avoid here is... In many ways, I think some of the like advantage plus narrative that's coming out of Facebook right now is sort of this idea of just like throw it all in a campaign and let Facebook yeah. sort it out. And while I'm a big proponent of probably one of the biggest proponents of machine learning, let Facebook, the algorithm decide, I think your job is business strategy and your job is merchandising, right? Because Facebook, especially when you're running on a lowest cost objective, what you've got to understand is that Facebook based on the basis of that output that you're saying is the goal is going to prefer some of your products over others. And it may or may not be what you as a business plan for from an inventory standpoint, because that's another consideration here that we didn't really bring up. Mm -hmm. Do you actually have yeah. the SKU in stock at the level that you need? <laughs> yeah. Inventory standpoint, from a marginal value standpoint, from an LTV standpoint, those are data points that Facebook doesn't have about your business. And so you can't assume them to make strategic allocations, even in a really sophisticated machine learning model, to those things that it doesn't know. And so your job is to represent those things in the structure, in the development of the account structure. And this is why I believe that account structure is such a critical part of a successful ad account in ways that I think some people tend to dismiss in how important it is to being successful. Yeah. And maybe we'll do a, an episode down the line. I don't think we have yet on how we think about campaign and account structure and how to build that out and make decisions there, but cool. All right. So at this point, let's move on to the mailbag. Obviously as a fan of podcasts as a medium myself, I love a good mailbag episode. And so we got a great question recently from Michael Simpson, who's the CEO, president and CEO of discountcatholicproducts.com if you want to check him out. And he asked an interesting question because a lot of the brands that we work for have a smaller SKU set and drive most of their traffic, or rather we drive a lot of their traffic via Facebook, Instagram, demand generation that way. But this is, I'll, I'll just read uh, the last couple paragraphs of his email here and then we can respond to it. I run an e-commerce business that is on the demand capture instead of demand generation side of things. 60% of our traffic revenue comes from Google ads, mainly Pmax, which basically replaced our shopping campaigns. And we don't use Facebook at all. People are searching for our products and we're capturing that long tail search traffic with Google ads and SEO, plus a healthy amount of repeat customers from direct traffic and email campaigns. My wife and I purchased this 20 year old e-commerce business 18 months ago, been trying to grow it. Okay. I'd like to hear more about that type of demand capture e-commerce business, as opposed to the demand gen Facebook ad side, looking at companies with larger catalogs of hundreds of thousands of products or hundreds or thousands of products rather. Many of the ideas that are applicable to a brand with less than 50 SKUs of branded private label products just don't seem relevant when you're a retailer with thousands of products across multiple brands, including unbranded products. I'd love to craft individual offers and sales funnels for each SKU, but it's just not feasible to do it with the size of our catalog and resources available. So I love this because this really, I mean, kind of plays into what we've been talking about, about product and creative right. and the confluence there. But yeah, let's, let's respond to that, Taylor. So what, what are your thoughts around the yeah. differences between what we're talking about and what he's talking about? Two, 
two things. Like I actually think if he follows the framework though, step one, he defines a constraint that answers how many of his products he gets to choose and he'll figure out which ones to choose for the demand creation side of things. Like that's the Mm -hmm. beauty of what we just talked about is that I don't care if you have a million SKUs, there can be infinite options. This is to help you sort through what to choose in light of that. Right. And so follow this framework and you'll still get to a decision about what you should focus on on the demand creation side. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that it'll work, but you'll get to your best choice, right? Which is what we're trying to help you decide there. Now, in this kind of business, what I'll say is that this business is won and lost in the search environment, not in the social environment. So what do I mean by that? Well, the benefit of being, well, let's start with the challenge. The challenge of being a retailer in this business model is that generally speaking, you're dealing with wholesale margins. You're dealing with way lower margin products because you are buying from a brand and they, you are paying some markup on the actual cost of goods that they're making money on. And then you're selling on the basis of that margin. So usually, you know, you've got 50% or less as your actual gross margin on each SKU. And in some cases, if you're drop shipping the product, it might be as low as like 20% on a SKU. And so what that means is that there's not a lot of room for CAC, right? And if you hmm. think about the cost of demand creation versus the cost of demand capture, demand creation is always more expensive. You're having to move people further down the funnel and the cost of that movement is just energy. It's just dollars. And those, so it's more expensive effort. So you have to live in the demand capture game. And the way that you have an advantage in that world is you have 10,000 potential products that have some amount of pre-existing demand for them. And so what you really have to be great at in this world is you have to be great at building your shopping feed. Okay. And curating the feed that you want to provide to Google. Now there's a similar exercise here in merchandising your shopping feed, right? Which is you have to understand which products you want to index with Google. And if you have really low margin products that are unlikely to generate a return for you, you might not want to index them at all, right? You might want to do more work around the keywords that you give to the shopping feed for certain products at different seasons or different moments of time right? And really ensuring that all of your keywords and titles are done really, really well for the product feed. But if you think about it, basically what you have to do is determine the volume of demand for every SKU and the cost to capture that demand for every SKU. And what happens is that likely there's a bunch of little bits of marginal value capture across the entire portfolio that add up to a really high valuable advertising. This is where retailers make their money. They make their money in search. And so for you, it's really about building the deepest, most robust search catalog and Google campaign structure than it is anything else. So I, I am willing to bet that you have hundreds of hours to go in squeezing every bit of value out of your search catalog before I would even worry about the demand creation side. And that's just the reality for your business model. And that's cool. It's actually a really fun, even more in a lot of ways for my logical brain, it's actually like the most structured way to win because there's, there's really fixed constraints in the game and you can sort of go down the list and figure out what volume is available for every SKU, what the cost of that volume is, what your capture would be on it. And you can sort of one by one, take the entire catalog and go out and try and capture that portion of the demand. And now maybe it's a really competitive environment and there isn't much, but I'm willing to bet that there's a long tail set of stuff here that's really, really valuable that you've just got to work and work and work to find and hone in on and isolate and phrase match to exact match to broad match to get the feed titles right to just ongoing basis. That's your, that's your business. So dig deep into that world. Yeah, I think, it, no, it sounds like 
Sounds like you're already digging into to Pmax and and making that kind of like the bulk of what you're doing. But like we'll, we'll probably link also in the in the show notes here just some of our stuff on Pmax and Google Shopping and how we think about that because like in some ways this is just the ultimate merchandising exercise here. It's just like there's so many things to choose from. What are the ten things that appear in the feed? when people search certain keywords. So Michael, appreciate your question or your feedback. And again, we'll encourage people, if you've got any idea, or uh, rather any questions for us, anything you want advice on, please don't hesitate to email podcast at commonthreadco.com and we will get on, into it on the air. Thanks again for joining us for the e-commerce playbook podcast. Remember to rate and review. And if you're watching on YouTube, remember to like and subscribe. It really helps us out. If you want to learn more about both merchandising the ad account and thinking about demand capture via Google Shopping and Performance Max, check out the links in the show notes. We'll have more information there and some resources that you can use to think about these things. If you want to know more about how you can work with us, learn from us, just interact in the, with us in any way, go ahead and drop us a line at commonthreadco.com, fill out the form there, and we'd love to chat. So have a good one, everybody. Happy scaling.